0: Last week we began our time together around these Advent lights with a reminder from God's Word about why they burn. About what God's primary message to us from His Word is this season and every Christmas season. If you weren't with us, that reminder was very powerful That first candle burns for everyone who's ever given up or ever thought about giving up, who's ever questioned the use of pressing on each and every day. We spent the first week of Advent establishing a foundation of God's presence for this season. God's presence that even in, and especially in seasons where he seems absent or seems or feels distant, we spent last week establishing a a foundation that God is with us. And when the world pressures us to turn to an alternative refuge, which proves to be no alternative refuge at all, the message of Advent is that we might believe again, that we might bring our worries and our fears to God and trust in his promises. Despite how we feel, despite what we're facing, when it seems like God is nowhere to be found, Christmas heralds that God is now here and will always be with us. But today... We've lit another candle, and with this candle comes another promise from God, another revelation from God. Depending on what you're going through and what you've been through in your life, this might be the most important one of all the Christmas promises for someone or for many of us. This may prove to be life-saving. Honestly, like with last week's conversation, this one might be as revelatory to Christians as it would be to a non Believers, So I think there's something for all of us today, something that we all so desperately need to hear, that our hearts are longing to hear. In fact, one of the gospel writers who records Jesus talking about this so often actually weaves this theme into the very core of his story. From the very beginning of his story, this is right there present in his text. It seems as if God gave him special revelation and inspiration about a particular event which is meant to set up Where Jesus would go on and what Jesus would go on to do. Pertaining to the promise that he would amplify and exclaim throughout his life. And maybe even more so in his death. That event is none other than the Christmas story of all Christmas stories. Luke's record and account of what happened in Bethlehem that first Christmas night. So if you got your Bibles, and I hope you do. I would love for you to open up to that very familiar, probably well-worn passage in your Bibles, uh, pages that you've turned to and uh, turned from many a times. Uh, I would like for you to open up there, um, as we'll probably be reading this text a few times over the next couple of weeks, and you'll be reading it hopefully in your own families. And um, and, and probably this is the chapter of the Bible um, that uh, even people that have practically never read the Bible can almost recite. And all of us know this almost by heart, this chapter of the Bible has so much to say to us. But there's one thing that I think is in this chapter, a detail, a couple of details that maybe have slipped past us through the years, and I think God wants us to unpack today. So let's first hear from God's Word. Luke 2, verses 1 through 7, the familiar story goes like this. And it came to pass in those days, the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered or taxed. This census first took place when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So all went to be registered, every one to his own city or to his home town. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth unto Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. And so it was that while they were there. The days were accomplished or completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. So we know the story. Because of the census, everybody was traveling to their hometown to register uh, and to go through all the paperwork that Rome required. Uh, Caesar Augustus wanted to know how many people were in the, t- the empire that he had built so he could raise taxes up shore. Um, they couldn't do this by mail like so many of us did, or they couldn't do it online like so many of us did last year or have done in several censuses in our lifetimes. But the story tells us they came to Bethlehem. But I feel like sometimes we kind of hear so we hear this story so often we don't really pay attention to the details because we kind of got a version that we've seen on TV or we've seen in dramas. But I want to pay attention to the to the details. Verse six says, so it was while they were there. While they were there, the time came. The time, of course, was for Mary to be delivered. So there's something I think this statement implies that I don't think we really talk about that often, but I want to kind of try to unpack it if we can. That they came there and they were there for a little while, and then the time came. Now, I don't know about y'all, but the way I've always heard the story, because of people like me that have told the story, maybe, the way I've always heard the story, the way I've seen the story on movies or on you know church stages, the way I've always heard the story processed the story, and maybe it's just me, but I have a hunch that many of you would agree with me, the way I've always heard the story is that Joseph and Mary were on their way to Bethlehem, and the whole time they're on the way, Mary is letting him know, hey, I am about to give birth to this baby. This donkey is not the most comfortable uh, of, of you know, positions to be in right now I'm about to give birth to this baby we need to pull over that's the way I've always heard the story I don't know about y'all so the way that kind of the story has been told to me or I've seen the story is that you know she's going into labor they get into town at the nick of time they begin to find or look for a place to stay they go to this inn or that inn maybe there was only one inn but they find a, they try to find a place to stay and everybody has the no vacancy light lit but one of them says you know what there's a barn out back help yourselves Is that kind of how we've heard the story? Am I making that up? Is that kind of how we picture it? That they barely get into town, and they try to get into the inn, and the innkeeper says, you know what, it just filled up, but hey, there's a burnout back. I bet you could find a place there. Now, that's, I think, how a lot of us have imagined this story, and that allows for this straw man to be Developed, And so many preachers have preached this sermon. I don't know if I ever have, but that allows for this straw man of this innkeeper who just said, Hey, I don't have room for y'all. Y'all go find somewhere else. Maybe there's a the barn. I don't know. And some great sermons have been preached, I'm sure. Sadly, more sermons have been preached about a character that's not even mentioned in the chapter than some of the characters that are in the chapter. Funny how preaching works sometimes. But details are so important. And especially in this story, because of the message that I think God wants to send from this story. And I'm not just trying to change things up for the sake of change things up. But really, this is something that has never jumped off the page to me. But this season, it just kind of wouldn't go away. I think God wants to send us something from this story. The text says that they were there in a few days passed. Then Mary goes into labor. And then we get the detail that there was not room for them. In the end. Now, I think it's important that detail comes after she goes into labor or after she gives birth, not before. She gave birth to him and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. Emphasis on them, as in now that there's a baby in the picture, don't really know if there's room for yours. So I think that the, the idea is, and again, I'm, this may sound sacrilegious because we've heard this story so much and we've seen it so much. Uh, again, I don't want to try to tear up anybody's images here uh, because of how the text has been portrayed to us. Uh, again, the distinction I'm making, they come into town, they're staying at the inn for a few days, Mary goes into labor, and then they are told, ask to leave because there was no room. Something important here. 75 times in the New Testament, the word room is translated place. Only three times it's translated room. This is one of those times. So what if the text is telling us that it wasn't that there was no vacancy, but rather there was no place for them? As in, there might be room here, but not for you. Specifically, not for him. As in, have you ever told somebody, you know, have you ever thought to yourself, well, I've got room. I mean, I don't really got room. Yeah, we have a place, but I don't know if that place is for you. Maybe you've been on the other side of that coin where you knew there was a place, but for some reason, there wasn't a place for you. Now, the simple reason is this was an inn, not a hospital. So maybe they just didn't want the mess of it all going on in the inn. I don't know. But I think there's a more complicated reason, and the reason why we don't talk about this at Christmas is because we want Christmas to be this buttoned-up, very kind of romantic story that is kind of you know nice and, and, and you know family-friendly. But I think there's a more complicated reason as to why we don't talk about what really is going on in the story. You, you see, according to the Jewish customs—this was not God—but according to the Jewish customs and the Jewish religion of the day, mothers and their newborn babies— were considered unclean in the aftermath of delivery. Now, this line of thought came from the law teaching that if family should make their way to the temple and offer a sacrifice and dedicate their baby to the Lord. And until they did that, the baby was considered unclean. Now, the Jewish religion took this and twisted it into this fear that women and their babies were unclean until they did this offering. Again, God never intended on this, God never sanctioned this, but the men that ran the temple twisted things into this idea that there was something contagious about them. The Jewish religion took this, and 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 so it was. The religion devolved and decayed over time, and the concern would be, and really, religion as a whole was paranoid at unclean people making other people unclean. This wasn't just a baby thing or a mother thing. This was all people that might be unclean, and religion was paranoid that if you're unclean and I get too close to you, I might become unclean. If God's angry at you and I get too close to you, He might become angry at me. If You've done something wrong, or if you've touched something wrong, or if you just have a situation that you're considered unclean for, if I get near you, I might be unclean. So it wasn't because they cared for the people, it's because they cared for themselves. Religion was obsessed with separating everyone. That might make you guilty by association. Isn't it true that what we read in the the Gospels, the Pharisees were always worried about who they were around, lest they be guilty by association. As a result, there was this paranoia and this obsession of being clean and being separate. Women and children, unfortunately, became more and more marginalized as a result of this paranoia. Now, the Jewish religion began making all sorts of regulations against children because children are prone to be sick. And the sickness that made people believe in the way they believed, the way they understood the world is the sickness was a sign that God was not pleased. So if the child was sick, the mother would be sick. So they needed to stay away from people. Now, this was no different than the way the pagan and secular world viewed children. In the early days, or the ancient days, um, the Jewish religion just had religious wrapping around it. In the Roman world, children were not automatically heirs of their family estates. In the Roman world, fathers would have an out and could not deed their inheritance to their sons if they considered their sons unfit or unworthy. In the Roman world, that a father had the opportunity at age 13 to adopt his own son. He never even had the, had the obligation to consider his daughter because, again, The way women were marginalized, they were not even brought into the same rights. But if a father wanted to adopt his own son, he could, but most likely he wouldn't. He would find somebody else to be his son. Famously, Caesar Augustus was not Julius Caesar's son. He was his adopted son because Julius decided his own son wasn't worthy of the name Caesar. He found somebody else's and bought him. That's how messed up the world was. And that's the world that Jesus was born into. So from the pagan world to the Jewish religious world, mothers and their children were in no way celebrated like they are in our culture. They were marked as unclean, unwelcomed, in some cases, unwanted. But it wasn't just the women and children. Anybody with a certain illness, like leprosy, Disabilities, handicaps, they were considered unclean, unwelcome, unwelcome, and unwanted as well. And even certain professions were labeled in the unclean, unwelcomed, and unwanted category. And this is where the hypocrisy of religion really shines, and it's it's really difficult to talk about. Think about this. What profession did the Jewish religion rely on more than any other? What was the backbone of the Jewish religion's economy, if you will? What did the temple require? Lambs. And who raised those lambs? Shepherds. It was shepherds who raised and tended to the sheep needed for sacrifice. But guess what? Even though Shepherd provided the lifeblood for the Jewish faith, shepherds were the most ridiculed and disassociated group of men in the entire nation. Why would that be? You see, because they were always hanging out with sheep. And even though many of the sheep were, were considered you know, spotless and worthy of sacrifice, many of the sheep had blemishes and had problems. And because of that, the shepherds were always unclean. So as it were, as they raised the sheep, the temple would send its people to bring in the spotless lambs and lead them up to, to Judea, or to Jerusalem, about 20 miles north of Bethlehem. But the shepherds were never allowed near the city, much less the temple. They were only considered good for raising the sheep, then they passed them off to the temple the very men who raised and cared for the sheep never were so much as welcomed into the temple. Can you imagine that? The blood of the very sheep they raised and nurtured wasn't deemed enough to cover their own sin and their uncleanness. All the while, it totally benefited the religious leaders. I mean, can you talk about hypocrisy? Because that's... The definition of it. And with all that, isn't it ironic that the innkeeper or whomever must have flippantly suggested you have to take your baby somewhere else? There's a stable outside of town where the shepherds lodge and keep their sheep. That's the only place you won't infect because it's already condemned. Why don't you go there and stay? Maybe Joseph and Mary just found that place because they had no other options, but nonetheless, consider the bigger picture here. Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the place where all the sacrificial lambs were kept. Mm -hmm. Little did they know, little did everyone in the town know how significant that would be. The Old Testament actually speaks of how this stable, this place would have been a pretty prominent site in Bethlehem. We all know the story the, God, the proclamation of Micah where he says Bethlehem is going to be the place that brings the Messiah to the world. But we probably haven't heard this verse too much. Micah 4 verse 8, before we get to that promise about Bethlehem that we know, Micah says, To you, old tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now Micah is talking to Bethlehem. He's saying to Bethlehem, you that is known for raising the flock that the temple requires, to you shall the Lamb of God come. Now again, in our little romantic versions, we see a barn, we see a stall like we would build in our world, but probably... Most believe that the, the, the tower that is referenced here in Micah and the place that Jesus would have been taken was something like this. Right outside of Bethlehem, there would have been a watchtower similar to this structure right here. And in that cave that you see would have been the stalls that the lambs were kept, the babies were kept, the adults would have grazed, the pastures. But in this tower, in this, uh, in this stable, would have been where all the lambs were kept. And most likely, most likely, this is the place That Jesus would have been taken to where a place like this isn't isn't the same one. A place like this would have been where Jesus would have been taken when there was no room for him or his mother in the end. The grown sheep spent their time out the pasture with the shepherds, but the babies were kept in the stable. And on this night, a different kind of baby lamb was brought in. And, and while we see the glowing symbolism, the society around them just saw a bunch of uncleanness and a bunch of unholiness. And I know in our minds we think, well, there was a barn outside of every inn. Well, there wouldn't have been because, again, that would have been unclean. And the whole reason why he probably wasn't allowed to be in the inn is because he would have been considered unclean. So outside of town, where the unclean sheep were kept, that's where baby Jesus was sent. And again, while people thought this was all about uncleanness and unholiness, we know this would have been the most pure and holy nights of them all. Now back to the text. It makes total sense as to why the angel announces his birth first to shepherds, doesn't it? They were always after thoughts in the Jewish religion, but on this night they would get to star in the main show. They weren't allowed in the temple on this night though they were welcomed into a place which was much more holy and much more filled with the presence of God than the temple ever thought about being they were out on the hills because they didn't need to be in the stall unless there were babies to attend to. The angel comes and makes it known that the best they best head to the stable because unbeknownst to them, a lamb had just been laid to rest in one of the mangers. And they knew exactly where to go. How's the rest of the story go? Verse 8. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were greatly afraid, because again, they had been told all their lives that if you ever get in the presence of God, you'll drop dead, because you're unclean, and you're unworthy, and you're unwelcome. But what does the angel say? Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. Shepherds, this is a message that is to people like you, to everybody in the world. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, and suddenly with the angel of of there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill toward men or literally the favor of God was resting on people. And so it was when the angels had gone away from, the, from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning the child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. These mangy shepherds, what good did they know? But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying God and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen as it was told to them. Everybody marveled at this report of an unclean mother and her newborn baby surrounded by unclean shepherds. What exactly was the message that God was trying to send that night? Verse 11 and 14 make it very clear to us. Despite what they had been told, their lives were valuable to God. So valuable that he sent a savior unto them. And the proof of that value would always be his favor rested on them. Verse 14 assures the shepherds and assures every one of us. that, in spite of what they had been told, God was not displeased with them. But they had all found favor with him. And of course, the same goes for Mary. And obviously, the same was true about Jesus, but not just them. This message was to all of those who'd been deemed unclean, excuse me, who had been deemed unclean by religion and society. And ultimately, this is the message that Jesus, this is the ministry, this is the message that he lives his life for. The way he was unceremoniously welcomed into the world, sets up a passion that would drive him from that day forward. Jesus knew what it was like to be treated contemptuously, so he lived to rectify that. They say we often live our lives trying to protect others from suffering the same things that we did. Prevent them from the same troubles that we faced. Jesus, not your average baby, I'm sure his memory was better than most. He remembered a world that made no room for him. He remembered a world that made no place for him. And he lived to make room for all who were marginalized and all that were cast out. Namely children, but also the poor, the sick, the broken, and the sinful. Jesus would give his life to showcase God's favor for all, proclaiming that everyone was valuable to God. Everyone is valuable to God. No one is too unclean. No one is unwanted. No one is unwelcomed. Everyone is valuable and worthy. That first Christmas night sends a message through time because on that first Christmas, for the first time, those shepherds felt something they never felt before. And deep down, Mary knew, despite how she had been and would be treated, that the baby she brought into the world would change everything for every outcast, for every downtrodden person to ever live. Before they had no hope. There was no place for them in religion or in society. But now things would be different because when he appeared, the soul felt its This is the disruption that Jesus brought into the world. He preached and modeled it again and again. That every soul is valuable to God. Everyone matters to God. And here's the distinction, and we don't want to admit this. Everyone might not be valuable to you. And everyone might not matter to you. But to God, every soul is valuable. And one matters. Everyone is worth an incredible, precious price to God. In Luke's gospel alone, this message underscores almost every chapter that you read. Every miracle, every sermon reverberates this message. So I'd like for you to turn with me to a few of the spots in the Gospel of Luke where we see Luke bring this theme to the surface because this was the story from the very beginning. So I want you to turn with me to a few of the the moments that proclaim and demonstrate this incredible promise. The first of those is Luke chapter 4. Again, we'll just be turning a few pages at a time, looking at a few verses at a time. And I would like for you, if you want to make a list of these verses, highlight these verses, um, go back and read these verses. There are so much more, so many more. But as we close, I want to just give you a few. So in Luke 4, Jesus begins his ministry at his hometown synagogue of Nazareth. He takes the pulpit, brings up the prophet Isaiah, and these are the verses that he reads and says that he has been sent to fulfill in the world. Luke 4, verse 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to recover the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those that are oppressed. Notice the categories that he's addressing here. The poor, the brokenhearted, the captive or the prisoners, those that were deemed, you know, that were suffering from their own consequences. The poor, the brokenhearted, the prisoners, the blind, the oppressed. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord or literally to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And his heart is especially turned toward the poor and the broken and the prisoner and the outcast and the blind and the oppressed. Nobody getting left out. Flip over with me again to Luke 6, if you are with us a few weeks ago on Sunday evening. We talked about this passage extensively, but it's so important. I want you to look at it with me this morning. Luke 6, verse 17 through 19. At this moment in the story, Jesus has just started his ministry. He's called his apostles. He's up on a mountain, and he's brought the apostles up to the top of the mountain, and the glory of God is shining, and the people are down at the bottom of the mountain. It's very similar to Exodus in Mount Sinai. The elders are up top. The commoners are down below. But unlike in Sinai, when the people couldn't get close to the mountain, and the people were separate from Moses and the glory of God, in this story... What does it say in verse 17? He came down with them and stood on a level plain, on level ground, on a level place. And the great multitude of people from Judea and Jerusalem, even Tyre and Sidon, came to hear him and be healed. Those that were tormented with unclean spirits, they were healed. The whole multitude sought to touch him, for power went out. Do you see the contrast between the old covenant that took that blocked people away from God, that said you weren't worthy to get near God, and this chapter tells us that God came down the mountain, so level ground, and His power was restoring everybody in His proximity. Everybody was welcomed. Everybody was impacted. Even those, especially those that were. passage we didn't read, but Jesus comes down a mountain on one occasion and he sees a leper and he lays his hand on the leper to make it very clear that he wasn't afraid to touch somebody just because the law said they were unclean. Flip over to Luke chapter 12. Because Jesus continued to preach this message of value and this message of uh, that, that God loved us and that God had a purpose for us. It was hard for people to hear because they did not live in a world where that was normal. Jesus says in Luke 12, verse 6 through 7, are there not five pharaohs sold for two copper coins? Are not one of them and not one of them is forgotten by God? The very hairs of your head are numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than the sparrows. I think he's winking when he says the sparrows because it's more than just more than the sparrows. You are valuable to God. Over in Luke 14, Jesus tells a parable about a master who has a great banquet. And the way it was in this day that if you had a great banquet, you only invited the great people. And the way the cities were structured in the ancient world is the king lived in the center and then the wealthy people lived closest to him. And then if you got to the outskirts of the city, it was where the less wealthy people lived. And if you got to the slums of the city and the wall of the city, against the wall of the city would have been the poorest of people, would have been the peasants, would have been the homeless. And if you got outside of the city, it would have been people that you didn't even want to get near at all to the highways and the roads around the city. So Jesus tells a parable that this master invites all the great ones in the center of the city, and all the great ones were too busy. They were too preoccupied. They were too otherwise invested. So when the master hears that those didn't want to come, down in verse 21... Notice the language here in the middle of that verse. The master says, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city. Go out to the outer area of the city and find the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. As in, the master wanted to make it clear that everybody got an invitation to his party. Even the people that nobody else ever thought about. And in verse 23, because there was still room, again, verse 22 says, there is still room. There wasn't room for Jesus because he was a baby, and babies are so unimportant. There wasn't room for the lepers. There wasn't room for the sinners and the tax collectors. But there was room in this story. The temple said, oh, there's no place for you. But Jesus says in the kingdom of heaven, there is still room. In verse 23, the master says, go to the highways in the edges, as in go outside the city to the byways where the people are, are the people that have no home and are wandering and are not accepted in this great city. Go out there and compel them so that my house might be full. you get the message yet? Now, then there's that very, very famous parable. Of the father and his two sons. Luke 15. That parable is introduced to us. Because Jesus is hanging out with some people. That they didn't want him to hang out with. Luke 15 verse 1 says. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him. To hear him. Drew near to him. You know why he, they drew near to him? Because he had drew near to them. And the Pharisees and scribes complained this man receives or welcomes sinners and eats with them. Because the most intimate thing you can do in the ancient world with somebody is share a meal with them. This man welcomes sinners to eat at his table. He even goes to their table. That's not right. That's not biblical. That's not legal. That's not good. That's not moral. They were... Indignant that Jesus was eating with these people. So Jesus tells a parable, like he was wanting to do. Now, the parable, he gets everybody on the same page. The parable is about a younger son who wastes his inheritance on riotous living, and everybody in the crowd, even the tax collectors, would have been thinking, man, that guy's a piece of work. Why would he do that to his father? His father gave him his inheritance early. He went and he wasted it, and he's wallowing with pigs, serves him running. And the story goes that the young man comes to himself and decides in his heart he's going to go back and proclaim to his father that he's unworthy to be called a son and he's going to beg his father to make him a slave. And he says, you know what, I bet my dad will let me back in. I know he'll never love me again. He'll never value me again. I'll always be unworthy. I'll always be marked. I'll always be remembered as the one who did all the wrong things. But I bet he'll let me be one of the slaves outside in the barn. And the story goes that Now in verse 20, as he tells this parable, after the son makes that proclamation, he rose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. You don't hug someone that's unclean, much less kiss someone that's unclean. That's pretty common, right? It's pretty accepted. But not this father. He hugs him, he kisses him, and then the son said to the father, the son says, oh, dad, I I got a speech. I've got a speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and earth and against your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he's about to get to the part about being a slave. But when the father hears him say those words, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. The father says, I've heard enough. The father said to his servants, Bring me out, bring out the best robe, put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us make merry and let us eat. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they begin to be married. When the father heard him say, I am not worthy to be your son, he says, Son, you've got it all wrong. No one is unclean. No one is unworthy. No one is unwanted in the family of God. I mean, isn't that the message we heard again and again and again throughout Luke? And we've just read ten verses. If you read the whole book, it would be even more clear. Maybe even more preposterous than that parable was the time something else happened. In Luke chapter 18. Remember how the story started. There might have been room for a man and his wife, but there wasn't room for a man and his wife and their baby after they just gave birth. No room for that. That's unclean. That's unwanted. It's unwelcome. So in Luke 18, they also brought infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Whoa, whoa, whoa. The hands that touch the hands of God, the holy God in a body of infants, are unclean. He's got bigger fish to fry. He's got better things to do. Oh, if you're a king or if you're some wealthy person or rich person or prominent person, oh, he'll shake your hand. But he doesn't have room or have time for them. And Jesus called to him. But Jesus called them to him and said, let the little children come to me. Do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. And listen to how strong Jesus' language is in verse 17. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. He said, if you think they're unclean and unworthy the woman, then they're the only ones that are going to get in. If you're going to get in, you're going to have to be just like them. Jesus remembered what it was like to be told there's no place for you. He made it loud and clear to every child, to every woman, to every tax collector, to every leper, to every unclean, unwanted, unwelcome person, there is room for you. The only people Jesus ever turned away were the rich and the religious. He made it known. But there is a place for us in the family of God. Amen. Yes. He changed so much about this world. This might be the most significant thing he changed. All these years later, we can look back to Christmas as the night that the collective conscious of humanity awakened to the reality that our souls have Of course, even with all these demonstrations and all these proclamations, it was a struggle convincing people that this was truth. But Jesus was relentless with his teaching. And if you consider his teaching holistically, it becomes very, very clear that the epicenter of every sermon he preached, every parable he taught, every miracle he performed was this truth. The motivation behind everything he ever said and ever did was to communicate this one thing, that we are valuable to God. And just in case his words were not enough, he gave his own life to prove how much you are worth to God. Romans 5 But God shows his love for us. And this is the key part. While we were still a long ways off, While we were still sinning, Christ died. He died before you ever ask forgiveness. Knowing that you might not ever ask. God showed us our value by giving to us and for us his most valuable possession. Isn't that incredible? You are valuable to God. Everyone is valuable to God. And Christmas is the season where we are reminded of this, but it's also a season in which we who know this are called to make it known to those that might not. Because sadly, we don't live in a world where everybody knows this. And we don't live in a world where every Christian treats people like this, do we? Now, we could button up the sermon right here and be done, and we're, we're almost done. But I think there's something more. Because Christmas is the season that we're reminded how great this promise is. But there's something in the air that says, we can't keep this to ourselves, isn't there? The early church didn't miss a beat after Jesus ascended to heaven. If you read the book of Acts, the early church... Possessing this value and sensing their worth, the early church made it their ministry to instill this value to and for all. They lived their lives to help show others their worth. Read Acts 2, read Acts 4. The early church had favor with the people. The early church, the grace of God worked through them. And they were constantly showing kindness and generosity and loving everyone around them so that everybody might know this. Maybe you wonder why Christmas became the season of giving and the season where this there is this extra emphasis on generosity and kindness. Every year when Christmas begins, it always brings with it a particular sense of perspective and conviction. Christmas reminds us that God has been so incredibly gracious to us and kind to us all. Our salvation is a gift from him. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. But there's nothing that can take it away. When we really pause to consider the favor we've been given with God, something compels us to leverage that favor for more than just ourselves. That there are plenty in this world who do not know the fortune we enjoy. The Bible is full of verses that instruct us to do what Jesus did with our words, with our life, with our possessions. Leading us to the poor, the blind, the captive, the outcast. Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol punctuates this message early on in the story. You're probably familiar with the story. Mr. Scrooge is visited by some charity organizers who are seeking some donations. and Scrooge wonders why they double their efforts at Christmas and why they want to take all that he's worked so hard for. If you ever read, never read the book, I encourage you to do so. But as they come to Scrooge, they say, you know, Scrooge, in this season, it's desirable to make a slight provision for the poor, to make food and try to help those that are suffering, that don't have the common comforts that we have. And Scrooge dismisses this request, citing there are plenty of ways for people to find help in the world and improve their conditions on their own. But the people push back. They say, under the impression that they scarcely furnish Christian cheer of mind and body to the multitude. Uh, a few of us are endeavoring to raise a fund to buy the poor some meat and drink and means of warmth. And when Scripture says, why now? They say, we choose this time because it is a time of all others when want is keenly felt and abundance rejoices. You know, as we all enjoy our abundance this year, and as we sing about it louder than ever, let us not forget there are plenty who suffer, want, and feel it, it the hurt greatly. This season is the perfect season to recalibrate why we've been blessed and what we can do to help those that are in need, because this is the season where our greatest need was met. If we turn our eyes from those in need, no matter how blessed we are, we bring a curse on our lives that will far and away cancel out the blessing. And here's why embracing generosity this season is so important to you and beyond beyond those you've helped. It allows us to remember where our worth comes from. Not how much we've got or what we've done, but in what was given to us by God and given for us by Jesus. When we sink our hearts up to this truth and we help others see this, the world becomes a brighter place. I know we could have ended this message back at the conclusion of what God has done for us, but I think the only right way to have this conversation is to always consider there are plenty who don't know the value of ours that we know. With Christmas, we rejoice knowing where ours comes from, but we also vow to leave no stone unturned to show the same is true for them, the same is true for all. Let me just remind you, if there's anybody here today that's ever questioned if you matter, if you're valuable, if you have a purpose in the kingdom of God, you absolutely do. Jesus lived and died to prove to you that God loves you, that God says there is no one unwanted, no one unwelcome, no one unworthy in his kingdom and in his family. While you were still a great ways off, he burns these candles brightly for you to show you there is a place for you. That you're no longer a slave You're no longer an outcast. You are his child. By faith in Jesus Christ, you are a child of God. What a beautiful promise that is to be reminded of this season. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for reminding us of this heart of the Christmas story. Thank you for showing us that Jesus knows what it's like. To be rejected, to be deemed unworthy, to be unwanted. The shepherds knew what it was like to not be welcomed in the presence of God. But this season reminds us that you came to them. And you lived your life to show the world that there is room, there is a place in the family of God for everybody. Lord, let us vow to take that message and make it loudly heard this Christmas season. If there's anybody in the house today that they, they, they had never heard this, never knew this, Lord, help them make it personal today. Help them to say those words by faith in Jesus Christ, by trusting in him, by being, asking him to be their savior. They can be a child of God based on your favor alone. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.